Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gores podcast. Today we're talking about the Morgao Caves of Dunhuang, Part 2, aka Foreign Devils on the Silk Road. In Part 1 of our discussion on the Morgao Caves of Dunhuang, we began to talk about how the caves were rediscovered. We mentioned the Taoist priest Wang Renlu last time. Just to remind you, at a time when the Morgao caves were largely neglected, this priest moved there and made himself their caretaker. And in June 1900, he and an assistant discovered the incredible treasure trove that is the secret library. Upon making the discovery, Wang Yuanlu reported his finding to the local magistrate. The magistrate did nothing. Wang Yuanlu reported the matter to officials at the provincial level. They also did nothing, telling him only to seal the library and to keep the materials where they were. Perhaps, in fairness, they had other things on their minds. The years 1900 and 1901 were not kind to China. These were the years of the Boxer Rebellion and the invasion by the eight allied nations in response. At one point, Wang Yuanlu even wrote to Empress Dowager Cixi in Beijing, who at this time was the true power behind the throne. Naturally, she declined to respond. Now, if you've listened to the episode on the Oracle Bones, which also came to scholarly attention around this time, you may recall that as of the turn of the 20th century, Chinese pharmacies sometimes sold the ancient Oracle Bones as medicine. Well, now the priest Wang Yuanlu started doing something similar. He started selling pages and fragments from the library as medicine. Either he seriously believed it, or the local people believed it. Either way, the pages of old texts, sometimes in languages that the Chinese couldn't read, came to be supposed to possess magical healing qualities. If the sick should burn the papers, dissolve the ashes in water, and then drink the water, they could be cured. Terrible, yes. But it was because Wang Yuanlu started selling the pages that some of them reached the hands of the foreign adventurers and scholars who were gallivanting around this corner of Asia at this time. Peter Hopkirk's excellent book, Foreign Devils on the Silk Road, provides a detailed account of the daring do's of these men. The thing about this area, today's Xinjiang Autonomous Region of China, and nearby places, was that as of the late 19th century, Europeans knew almost nothing about it. It was one of the last blank spots on the world map for European explorers. 
Moreover, tantalizing hints had suggested to these explorers that people of European stock, just like themselves, might have made their homes in this area in the forgotten past. And so they came, looking for further clues and evidence to illuminate that past. We should perhaps begin with a man who, in the end, didn't directly have anything to do with the Dunhuang Caves, but who blazed the trail for those who did. Sven Heden was born in 1865 in Stockholm, Sweden. At 15, he witnessed the way his countrymen lauded the return of the Arctic explorer Adolf Erik Nordenskjöld, and decided that he wanted one day to experience that sort of glory for himself. As a young man, he studied under the German geographer and China expert Ferdinand Freire von Richthofen, and resolved to explore the uncharted parts of Central Asia. Between 1894 and 1908, Hayden did exactly that, launching three epic expeditions into Central Asia, mapping parts of Xinjiang and Tibet that had previously not been mapped. Besides being a pioneer in that sense, Hayden was also among the first European researchers in Asia to employ local scientists and research assistants to fill in the gaps of understanding almost inevitable for an outsider. Heden, though, was primarily an explorer rather than a proper scientist. He never completed the training that his mentor, Richthofen, recommended for him. So he had to leave the proper study of many of his discoveries to later scientists. So now let's move on to probably the most famous of the cohort of Xinjiang scholar explorers, who was also the first foreigner to take note of the pages that Wang was selling. Sir Oral Stein, Mark Oral Stein, was born in 1862 in Budapest, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, to a Jewish couple, Nathan and Anna. After earning his doctorate in 1883, at only 21 years of age, he went to England to further his studies. In 1886, he learned about an ancient mathematical manuscript found in Peshawar, historically a part of Afghanistan, but now part of Pakistan. Intrigued, Stein went to India. From 1887 until 1899, he associated himself with the University of Punjab and then Oriental College, Lahore. Fascinated by reports coming out of Central Asia, particularly Chinese Turkestan, i.e. Xinjiang, and inspired by the adventures of Sven Heden, Stein secured funding and ultimately engaged in four expeditions into the area. In 1900 to 1901, 1906 to 1908, 
1913 to 16, and finally in 1930. On that first expedition, 1900 to 1901, Stein discovered the abandoned oasis town of Dandan Oilik in the Taklamakan Desert of Xinjiang. On his third expedition, 1913 to 16, Oral Stein excavated. The abandoned city of Karakhotou in western Inner Mongolia, but it was on his second expedition, 1906 to 08, that Stein made his greatest discovery. It was on this expedition that his destiny intersected with that of the priest Wang Ruanlu. It was in 1907. And coming to Dunhuang along the Silk Road, Stein heard reports of the mysterious pages that Wang Ruanlu had been selling. Stein and his Chinese assistant found the priest Wang, and gradually won his trust. Eventually, he bought and carted away some twenty-four cases of documents, as well as several more cases. Of works of art and other artifacts, Stein would return in 1914 to purchase further documents from Wang Ruanlu. He later donated most of these documents and finds to the British Museum, which today holds the largest collection of Dunhuang artifacts in the world. For his work. He received a knighthood after becoming a British citizen in 1904. Many Chinese, though, see Stein's work as little better than daylight robbery and the misappropriation of their cultural heritage. Although some also agree that Stein advanced our collective knowledge of Dunhuang and the Silk Road. Had things been left in the hands of Wang Ruanlu? Who clearly didn't appreciate the significance of the documents in his possession, presumably, ever more pages would have been sold and consumed as medicine. And the Qing imperial authorities presumably never would have made any effort at conservation, but for the coming of foreign researchers. Which brings us to the Frenchman in this story. Paul Paleo was born in Paris in 1878. Initially intending to become a diplomat, Paleo studied English and Chinese as a young man, and exhibited remarkable talent as a linguist. Eventually, he would come to speak a total of 13 languages, including English, German, Chinese, Russian, Arabic, Vietnamese. Persian, Mongolian, Tibetan, and the extinct language of Tocharian. As a result of his apparent linguistic gifts, Paleo attracted the attention of the sinologist Edouard Chavan, the chair of Chinese at the Collège de France, who in turn introduced him to the college's Sanskrit chair, Sylvain Levy.
In 1900, Paleo moved to Hanoi, Vietnam, at this time a French colony, to take up a position as a research scholar at the French School of the Far East. Later that year, the school sent him to Beijing to purchase Chinese books for the school's library. The timing meant that he got caught up in the Boxer Rebellion, during which he displayed remarkable self-possession and at one point even negotiated with Chinese boxer leaders. The following year, at only 23, Paleo was made a professor of Chinese. In 1904, Paleo returned to France. He had the intention of returning to Hanoi to continue teaching at the French School of the Far East, but while in France, he was chosen to lead a French government-sponsored expedition to Xinjiang. The expedition departed in June 1906 with Paleo, Louis Vellan, an army doctor, and Charles Nouet, a photographer. They soon made the acquaintance of Baron Gustav Mannerheim, a colonel in the Russian Imperial Army, and in fact, a Russian spy in the so-called Great Game that Tsarist Russia was playing against the British Empire and China in Central Asia. With Mannerheim's help, the French expedition traveled through Russia, Uzbekistan, and Kyrgyzstan. They reached the city of Kashgar, the westernmost city in today's China, and a center of Uyghur culture in Xinjiang. There, they stayed at the Russian consulate, which today functions as a hotel. A hotel where, if I may add, I had the honor of sleeping for a few nights. In Kashgar, by impressing Chinese officials with his fluent Chinese, Paleo was able to obtain their help. In 1907, in the town of Kuche, which in ancient times had been its own state, Paleo found documents in a lost local language written in the Brahmi script of India. His erstwhile mentor, Suban Levi, was later able to decipher these documents as written in Tukharian B, a subtype of Tukharian, the language of the ancient people of the Tarim Basin. Then, Peleo's expedition moved on to Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang. In Urumqi, Peleo caught up with an old acquaintance, perhaps to his surprise. Ai Xingjiuluo Zailan was a duke and a member of the Qing Dynasty's imperial clan. In 1900, he had been one of the members of the aristocracy who encouraged the Boxer Rebellion, at one point even leading some of the boxers in attacking foreigners. When Paleo went to Beijing in 1900 and found himself caught in the middle of the violence, Zai Lan had been one of his adversaries. But now, after the failure of the Boxer Rebellion, Duke Zai Lan had been exiled to Urumqi. 
The encounter with his old frenemy, though, proved crucial to Peleot's career. It was Zai Lan who gifted him with a document newly discovered in Dunhuang. So now Peleot had a new object to his mission. He and his team hurried over to Dunhuang. Oral Stein had beaten them there by three months and already carted away his share of the treasures. Now it was Peleo's turn to negotiate with Wang Yuanlu, the priest. With his fluent Mandarin, Peleo convinced Wang also to let him take a portion of the documents from the library. After three weeks reviewing the documents, Peleo picked out some 2,000 of them to take with him. Although Stein took a larger number of documents, Stein couldn't read Chinese and ended up with many items without value. Paleo, in contrast, took only what he knew was valuable. These papers are now deposited in the French National Library, the Bibliothèque Nationale. But it was also Paleo who first made the Chinese themselves sit up and pay attention. Passing through Beijing in 1909, before returning to Paris in that same year, Peleot showed some of his Dunhuang finds to a provincial governor as well as some Chinese scholars. It was only then that the Chinese recognized the significance of what the Westerners had discovered. It was only then that they clamored for their own government to protect and preserve the documents of Dunhuang. But by then, China was only two years away from the Republican Revolution of 1911. Further, so-called foreign devils showed up in Dunhuang in the ensuing years. Count Kozui Otani of Japan was also a Buddhist monk and eventually the abbot of a temple in Tokyo, sponsored three expeditions to Dunhuang between 1902 and 1910. Langdon Warner, a professor at Harvard and thought to be one of the models for Indiana Jones, came to Dunhuang in 1924. Controversially, he used a chemical technique to remove 26 Tang Dynasty mirrors from a number of caves to take with him. And finally, there was Sergei Fyodorovich Oldenburg, the Russian Orientalist. As I said before, with respect to Oral Stein, controversies continue to surround these foreign scholar explorers of Dunhuang. The Chinese often take the view, and it's the official view, that these men robbed China of some of her cultural heritage, which ought to be returned. Some Western scholars defend what they did on the grounds that the Chinese were ignoring their own heritage anyway, and that they bought 
the documents and artifacts in good faith for good money. And in the case of Langdon Warner's removal of murals, he had seen evidence that Russian soldiers in the area were vandalizing the caves. So he was at least partly motivated by a desire for conservation. Where do I come down? I can see both points of view. I will simply say that I recently stopped by the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris to try to see the Paleo collection. The security guards turned me away. The library, they said, was under renovation. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.